This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the 2022 Petrus Development Conference. Join Catholic fundraising professionals in Naples, Florida this June to build the tools and community that make fundraising enjoyable and fulfilling. For more details and to register, go to petrusdevelopment.com slash pdc22 and use the coupon code PILLAR for $50 off your conference registration. Hey everybody, welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each and every single week, because I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my uh, Pillar co-founder, by Pillar Editor and co-founder, but I'm, for goodness sake, and I'm joined by Ed Condon. Ed, what's doing? Uh, hi, J.D. I'm, I'm having a... My podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, that's what I like to say, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed... Content. I'm hi JD. I am I am in answer to your earlier question having a perfectly reasonable Wednesday. We are of course recording this a day early, which may confuse some people. We're recording this show on Wednesday because I am uh, hitting the road tomorrow to do uh, to uh, to um, speak at a small event um, uh, on Friday, but it's gonna have to fly there and whatnot. It's uh, it's so is it anywho, in Minnesota. It's not in Minnesota. It's oh. in, it's not in Minnesota. Normally, with you, all roads lead to Crookston. So I all roads tend to lead to Crookston for uh, for me uh, because you and I have just been talking about the Eucharistic um, revival, which is uh, which I, I don't know if we're going to talk about that too much on the show today. But you and I have been talking about the Eucharistic revival uh, because the Eucharistic revival, the three year project of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, um, intended to inculcate greater Eucharistic devotion and spirituality in parishes, dioceses, and hearts around the country is kicking off this summer. And it is, of course, um, uh, led by the Bishop of Crookston, Minnesota, namely Bishop Andrew Cousins D. D, I suppose. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, I have covered um, the Diocese of Crookston a fair amount, and now we are talking about the Diocese of Crookston because we're talking about the Eucharistic Revival. Ed, what do you think about the Eucharistic Revival as a project? I, I like it. Um, I, I'm increasingly struck by it. So one of the things that I do in my spare time is I attend and help lead a, a young person's to use a an amorphous term, but a, a young person, sort of college age and above, troubled youths. No, you they're not troubled. The, they're not troubled. Oh. No one said that. Untroubled youths. You did this last week as well. I mentioned house guests, and you turned it into unwelcome house guests. <laughs> I mentioned young people, and you say troubled young people. Aren't like, all what is young with people you? Troubled? I don't know if you see the data, Ed, but all young people are troubled. America's young people are in a burgeoning mental health crisis of untold proportions, and those youths are more troubled than you might realize. Uh, <sighs> There's, I'm just going to let that pinata swing there. I'm not going to, I'm not rising to the bait that I know you're dangling. Anyway, um, no, one of the things that I do uh, in my spare time is uh, my wife and I uh, help lead a, a young person's uh, basic Bible study, but also uh, in every session we end with uh, evening prayer and also a period of adoration. And it has been my experience and it has been to my great edification to see that often um, the simple presence of the Eucharist and the quiet, intentional presence of a person in front of it can affect great personal spiritual change and growth yes. and and have immense benefit, and certainly for me too. And so I am fully in favor of and excited for the Eucharistic revival. I think that, you know, the church says all the time, 
in its documents that the Eucharist is the source and summit of of our life in the church. It is the single greatest treasure that we possess. It is the miracle. It is the physical presence of Christ in our midst. Um, what, not just what could go wrong, but what couldn't go right? I ask you, if uh, if we are going to have a a a centerpiece ecclesiastical initiative advancing our appreciation for an understanding of the Eucharist. Yeah. It's kicking off uh, June 19th. The uh, What is June 19th? Uh, is it a Thursday? <laughs> That's funny. It's kicking off June 19th, the Feast of Corpus Christi. And uh, hang on one second. I got a cough. Are you drinking White Claw while we're recording? No, I'm not drinking White Claw. I'm drinking something called Spindrift. Do you know it? No. Uh, Spindrift is not a sponsor of this program or anything like that, but Spindrift makes uh, makes a sparkling water with a squeeze of fruit in there. So it's it's not like Lacroix, the Lacroix that has a fake fruit kind of a thing. Spindrift is uh, a sparkling water with uh, I don't know a squeeze of squeeze of fruit ingredients, carbonated water, raspberry puree, lime juice. So they got the. Do you know I I was once on a <clears throat> this is when I was a much younger man, and I would do things like at the last train back at the end of a long Saturday night. Last um, train to Georgia. Well, it wasn't to Georgia. It was Last out of London. Last train to but, Piccadilly Circus. Yeah. Uh, anyway, and I, I, w- I had nothing to do, and it was late. It was very late at night, and I was alone in the train car, and I, and I had a bottle of, um, some. It was a sort of fruit-ish drink that it was made by Coca-Cola, but I think it was called Oasis or something Fanta? like. That. No, it was, was Fanta. No, it's not Fanta. Um, it, but, I mean, it, it's one of those things that Coca-Cola make from time to time that purport to be something healthy when, in fact, they're not. Oh, sure. Yeah, like Fanta. You keep bringing up Fanta. I don't know why, <laughs> but stop that. Uh, but anyway, and I was reading the back of the bottle, and it was saying the ingredients and everything and sort of making these not explicit but implied um, claims of you know sort of authentic fruitiness and healthiness and stuff. And anyway, it said, for more information, call. And it gave a number. And so I... Pulled my phone out and I called it. Oh, for goodness sake. You probably got somebody at it. The person pulling the night shift at the fruit drink. <laughs> I think I probably. Hotline. You probably got him out of bed. I don't know if I got him out of bed or not, but they were. They answered the phone and, you know, they said it was the, you know, Schweppes or whatever it was, Schweppes Coca-Cola, you know, customer service line or whatever. Could they help me? I said, yes. I said, I've got this bottle here. And it says, for more information to call this number. So, okay, what's the problem? So there's no problem. I just like some more information. Can you know? Wow. I've got a long train ride. I got nothing to do. What do you got? And I ended up having a very nice chat with this person for about fifteen minutes. Who, I think, we were both in a similar situation, which is we were we were sitting in a room alone with no one to talk to and nothing to do. And you know, it was a little moment of human contact, JD. Yeah, I'm really glad. I'm really glad. So the Eucharistic revival uh, kicks off June the nineteenth, Corpus Christi in diocesan, as I understand it, in diocesan cathedrals. Around the country, we'll have sort of opening uh, events, liturgical events, and I believe Eucharistic processions and um, adoration. And then the goal is um, to spend, I believe, kind of a year um, uh, inculcating dia- uh, Eucharistic spirituality in dioceses across the country. And then uh, from there, as I understand, it, it's kind of interesting because I think that the way it works is – uh, diocesan phase, and then a kind of parish phase where after there's been this sort of buildup of Eucharistic spirituality in the diocese, then parishes kind of take it take it a, a little more local. And then um, and that will culminate in uh, in July of 2024, uh, which I guess is two years away, um, with, a, with a whole to-do in Indianapolis, which when I think about, uh, you know, 
truthfully, when I think about when we think about Catholic spirituality in the United States, we ought to think about Indiana more because of the influence of um, of missionary um, Jesuits and um, religious sisters who traipsed across Indiana in the in the uh, early part of America's history. Um, and so maybe that's why we're having it in Indianapolis, or maybe Indianapolis is thought to be centrally located and give a good deal at the convention center. But one way or another, July 2024 will be, they say, 100,000 Catholics at a whole um, shebang of Eucharistic spirituality, devotion, and, um, and piety. I just assume we're going to be going to that. Yeah, we're going to that. I just assume we're going to be invited to give it i mean i think a lot of people when they think about eucharistic piety think about us so i presume we're going to be invited to give a series of meditations <laughs> i do not see that happening but i don't either but you know what we should do in um, at the eucharistic revival is do a live show yes i don't know what that means actually but we should do a show from the eucharistic revival with an audience well we you should know, really do like JDs. we should do more live stage. shows in general, we should, we should do i, I say more live shows we should do any live shows any live shows and what is uh, i don't no, but what is that? Does that mean we do a, we film our show before a live studio audience? It's basically we we have to do cheers. We do, you know it's it's live it's live to tape. Live to tape. So in other words, we invite we invite people to come to a bar or a convention hall or a concert hall or something like that, and then from there we. Um, do a show, and we yeah, have some audience I, participation. Let's be realistic here. We're not going to do that. We're not going to invite people. to. We, I, we, would you, no, I'm, you're laughing, but we're not. I mean, it's just we're not going to make the time and figure it out. And you know, but I, I, I tell you what, I will say this. I will say this. If anyone would like to invite us to do a live show somewhere, I'll strongly consider it. If you yeah. build it, we might come. I would say if you discuss with Ed the prospect of building it, there's a high likelihood will come. But I have right now – I was just telling my wife last night that one thing I'm not good at is um, is uh, like delegation or differentiation of labor. So I've been feeling like I have a lot of things on my plate lately. And then you said to me the other day something which really threw me for a loop. You said to me, I need a hobby. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I need to delegate because I – Wait, that were, you, moment, were you – Vetching to your missus that I don't pull my weight? Is that no, what you were doing? No, I wasn't vetching to my missus that you don't pull your weight. It, it, not, on the contrary, I was vetching to my missus that I don't um, that I uh, don't often share the share the share the wealth, and uh, and so I was feeling like because I was working on the new website and I was in contact with some people about some uh, advertising and promotion and sponsorship opportunities and I was just feeling a lot of things on my plate. And I was realizing that I don't tend not – that it's a, a fault of mine that I've had for a long time and you've actually called me on it in the past. But I tend not to um, spread that around. And, uh, and so um, uh, I think that it would be great if we did a live show or a series of live shows, a road trip really. And if you think that would be great, contact Ed and he will check his email and his Twitter DMs and other places where you might contact him to be in touch with you about that. And I will go where I'm told on this one. Uh, e- e- email me. Folks, if you if you actually want to do that, don't Twitter DM me. I almost never check the sort of roiling cauldron that is um, my Twitter DMs. It's well, it, how can they get? Where can they find your email address, or can you say it right now on our website? Oh, okay. Where on our website? I, on one of the tabs. What? I, what? I, you you want me to like just like hand out? Why don't I just write them on a bathroom wall somewhere? I mean, you well, need- I don't want you to do that. I just want you to tell the people who listen to the show uh, how they can email you because I think it would be fun to do one of these live shows. But I don't want to have to. All right, fine. Econ- dot com. 
econdon at pillarcatholic.com if you'd like to help organize a pillar live show wherever it is that you are. I'm you happy now? If it's in proximity to an airport or a major metropolitan area, or not a major metropolitan area, but it's relatively close to an airport. I prefer cool. a, Catholic, a Catholic college or university. I think that would be fun. Oh, a Catholic college or university. Oh, or seminary even. Or seminary. Seminary for preference. Okay. So, Those are our people. But I tell you what, J.D., I did say to you I needed a hobby the other night. But I want to be clear. It's not because I have all this time on my hands. It's because I need an outlet. What does that mean? I, you said that, but I actually don't know. I don't know what that means. Uh, don't you, from time to time, just feel the sort of uh, almost physical, heartburny pressure, rage build up, sort of in your chest that you just you want to, I don't know, scream or break something? No, but we have different. I don't know the names of the personality types. Like I don't know what they are. Sanguine, melancholic, I don't know the choleric. I don't know exactly what those things are. But a lot of people talk about them in our circles. But I think you and I have different dispositional personalities wouldn't that maybe i i have i i don't know i don't know those words myself but i a I have lot what, of people do I, I that may be i i have what i like to think of as a sort of burning rage monster inside that every now and then i just need to be able to direct in a i don't want to say constructive way because there's no constructive way but no, the point actually is to a destructive way as in as much as i understand your psychology um, but anyway, to point to point this sort of um, pent up frustration uh, in a direction where it can do no harm. That's that, I see. You know, whether it's going to a batting cage or you know something like that. But to direct to it, because otherwise, it, if you let it build up inside you, JD, it starts leaking out in in other places that you don't mm-hmm. want it to. And mm-hmm. and I don't want to, I don't want to snap at you know you me <laughs> or or God forbid my spouse. Right, or, yeah, sure. you know, or, or get too too angry in my newsletter, which you occasionally accuse me of doing. Um, so that was all I was saying. It's not that I have a ton of free time; it's that I, just, I need an outlet. I, you know, everyone needs a little stress relief. I guess that's true. Um, anywho, uh, the live show will be great. The Eucharistic revival will be very interesting. The criticisms of the Eucharistic revival that I have heard. Uh, I think we've talked about this in the past, but the criticisms of the Eucharistic yet. What are people criticizing it for? Well, you've heard these because they were expressed on the floor of the U.S. Bishops' Conference in November, and I've heard people. I've heard people in some corners of the um, the Catholic press, as it were, uh, raise these objections. But I hear two: one, um, that it will be expensive; that the that the um, gathering of a hundred thousand Catholics in um, in uh, in um, Indiana, Indianapolis Indianapolis um, will be expensive. And uh, and two um, that um, uh, the theology of the Eucharist is such that we should be careful not to um, reify or tokenize the Eucharistic species in a way that segregates it from the Eucharistic sacrifice and the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Now, I think that it's indeed true that the Eucharistic sacrifice uh, of the Mass, the, the Mass, is the source and summit of the Christian life, the fountain, apex, as the Second Vatican Council says. But um, Benedict the uh, Sixteenth and Francis and um, um, people like um, uh, um, Bishop Ray of, of France, I, his first name is escaping me right now, but, but other writers, contemporary and historical, uh, about the Eucharist, whom I like to read, Right about the fact that Eucharistic adoration, Eucharistic piety and devotion, that if indeed the, um, the uh, Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is the font and apex of the Christian life, then Eucharistic piety and devotion, Eucharistic adoration and um, other kinds of other forms of Eucharistic prayer, like both 
uh, help us to better enter into the mystery of the Mass, to better pray the Mass, and um, to better um, attend uh, to and assist at with our own um, uh, sacrifices and interior uh, and interior presence, um, the the holy sacrifice of the Mass, and to sort of better uh, unpack and um, uh, um, unpack and unfold the mysteries and graces of the Mass in our own lives such that they flow more um, from, a, from our interior life into a life of charity. And I think that's true. So I think that it can, it can be a mistake to um, over sort of um, uh, to be overly skeptical about Eucharistic devotion and Eucharistic piety, um, even while I also think it's important to recognize that the holy sacrifice of the Mass in which Christ, you know, which Calvary is present on the altar um, is indeed the sort of penultimate experience of um, of of the Eucharist and of the Christian life on earth because it's a foretaste of the heavenly banquet which we all hope to enjoy. <clears throat> there's there's not a lot for me to disagree with there. Well, as to the money, um, yeah, I, I have heard bishops sort of say, well, this is very expensive and we could feed the poor with that money or we could do other things with that money and and um, and I appreciate that you are biting your lip. I ju- I, I'm sure that it will cost a pretty penny. I, I yeah, seem I to remember no the presentation in Baltimore related to what they thought the cost. I don't remember the figure, but it was millions. It, it was a large sum, but I feel like we often do uh, large-scale events that cost money in the church, and the bringing together of people for a for a pious purpose, but also for um, a a large experience of of fraternity of Christian fraternity, particularly gathered around. The Just an awareness of the of the of the scope of, of the church and the fact that there, are, you know, uh, other believers can be a big a big difference. For well, yeah, I mean, I, I, various World Youth Days have been formative um, in the lives of many many Catholics. The experience of uh, of, of of living together in a, in a particular moment in time, uh, gathered around uh, the, the ecclesial reality of the church. I, I I think it can be profoundly important, and you know. The church um, does a lot of things, big and small, that can be expensive. And uh, I, I don't tend to have a lot of patience for people who say things like, oh, well, you know, we could spend all this money on the Eucharistic revival and, you know, feeding the poor. Well, the church does spend quite a lot of money on on feeding the poor. I wouldn't say that's a neglected ministry in the church in the United States. Um, so I, I, I don't know that that's a, a reasonable criticism necessarily yeah and i think having a place i think having a having a having an event um having a big event like world youth day or like this eucharistic revival intends to be um is a good in itself in other words that there can be a great deal of good in sort of just having this experience of with world youth day the universality of the church or i think an increase in an increasingly secular american culture having the experience of, of commonality and and unity with um other believers in one place to sort of um, you know, pray in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, which should be the center of our lives and the center of our hearts. I, I think itself can be extremely edifying in a place where we can hear and experience the Lord. But I also think the going is really important in a way that's often forgotten. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's, all, it's only Indianapolis, right? I mean, you could get on a plane and be in Indianapolis in three hours from just about anywhere. I realize that's probably why they picked it. Um, but there's something probably to um, not getting on a plane, but um, – you know, we took when when um, when the Holy Father came to the United States in 2015 and canonized Junipero Serra in um, 
on the, at the outside of the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception uh, in Washington, D.C., we put the kids in the minivan and drove there. And it was uh, actually, you know, a lot of it was awful because we put a bunch of little kids in a minivan. But it was also um, wonderful and unifying and edifying. And um, and it was a pilgrimage. It was a family pilgrimage to yeah. a, a, a holy thing. I, the, we did the, the same thing Father in my Lord. household. Yeah. We walked. You walked to the canonization of Juniper Osair? Yeah. I mean, we lived five miles away at the time, <laughs> and there was a gigantic social um, se- Secret Service security cordon, so that was about what was required. We probably but, walked five miles because we just had a park so far away. But, yeah, exactly. Well, mm-hmm. I, I remember doing the, um, looking at the map and, and sort of doing the maths and thinking, well, where could I park? I was like, actually, it would just be quicker to walk. Did I see you there? Did, we didn't know each other. We did not know each other. I thought I mentioned this in the podcast before. I did see you there um, because someone I was with who, who knew you on Facebook, I think, had sort of slapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, that's that's J.D. Flynn over there. I know him from Facebook. He's a canon lawyer, too. You should meet him. And I said, nah, I don't think we'd get along. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I think there's something uh, – I think there's something um, – Beautiful and important to the spirituality of pilgrimage. And what we don't have in the United States really, I guess there's like um, pilgrimages that people make to Chimayo. But what we don't have really in the United States is a, our, is a custom of pilgrim routes and, um, you know, of walking pilgrim, pilgrim routes in the way that. A sort of Camino um, de Santiago. Yeah, for, Camino yeah. kind of places in a way that other, uh, some other Catholic cultures and places have. And so to be able to take a, a pilgrimage to an event is, I think, a good, a good thing that. Absolutely. Well, I mean, this the, was, you know, something that in the, in, the, in the history of the church has always been very important. I mean, well, even in the sort of biblical history and the theology of the Bible, the idea of a, of, of a pilgrimage, of a time of traveling, of sojourning is important to focus the mind, it's important to take you out of um, the sort of quotidian existence to, you know, to, to force you to reexamine every, every moment of your, of your day. I think it's vastly important. I think it's, and to yeah. have a sense of God's providence. You know, I was really struck. This is interesting because it's not the conversation that we have on our little sheet about what we're going to talk about today, but man, I, I was really struck by something which um, one, of the, one of the women featured in, uh, in the last article that we had from Ukraine said. So I don't know if you read um, Anatoly's kind of uh, uh, story about um, – set of stories, really a set of vignettes about the Triduum um, celebrated in Ukraine. But there was a, a woman who talked about um, being a refugee, fleeing Ukraine with her daughter and, um, and having to uh, – having to um, – kind of go across Europe and, and ending up um, in Italy where she was reunited with her husband from whom she had been uh, separated because he was in Poland at the time that the Russians started invading. And, uh, and, and she said, actually, she said the, the experience of pilgrims, of pilgrimages, I pulled it up while we were talking. She, she, said, uh, she said the experience of pilgrimages helped me, um, pilgrimages that she'd been on in the past, because sometimes there was no place to spend the night and we just sort of stopped where we could. But God sent us along the way very, very good people. And uh, she said she, she experienced the providence of God and this ter- terrible experience of being a refuge, uh, refugee in part because she had had the experience of identifying the providence of God and the presence of God in, um, in her experience as a pilgrim. And, and in a certain way, aren't we all um, both um, fleeing towards and, uh, and fleeing away? And um, so, yeah, I think it's an important set of experiences to be a pilgrim that many of us haven't had. Yeah, or that we have in a kind of very gosh, I do feel like we were talking about this recently, but that we can have in a very sanitized and um, commoditized way, where it's like a pilgrimage just means a package tour from three holy cities where we stay in really nice restaurants, and and that, there's nothing wrong with being a tourist in holy cities, but being a pilgrim is being in certain way 
dependent upon God's providence to get to some um, to some sacred moment, some sacred experience. But but there is a way in which it is a journey undertaken in prayer with the preparation of prayer, and in which one is dependent upon and, tr- and trusting divine providence to um, to unfold the path, as it were. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. So the Eucharistic Revival and uh, being organized by Bishop Andrew Cousins, I think they've begun to hire some staff. We should probably interview some of those, uh, some of the people who they're bringing on because I think that would be interesting to hear kind of what they're working on. We talked with Bishop Cousins, I think, last year about the sort of big picture. But now that it's going, I'd be, I, I think it'd be cool to do some interviews with some of the people on the staff who are doing the actual planning. Like how do you plan – I think a kind of – a pillar angle I think would be how do you really plan an event for 100,000 people, uh, you know, what are the logistics of that? And then connected to that, all of these diocesan events and kind of make them happen and yeah. help, help to the bishops make them happen. I think we should do some interviews around that. And if we need to talk with the bishop head of it, then I guess, as you say, all roads lead to Kirkson. There you go. Yeah. I'm sure that this whole, this whole conversation was in some way planned by you because you just wanted an excuse to, to talk about this so that we could then plan spontaneously and mutually increased coverage ahead of the Eucharistic Revival so that you would then have an excuse to go to Crookston again. Because I love Northwestern Minnesota so much. You do. And I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. I don't, I I went, I don't remember. Did I love it? You, I like the people a lot, right? You love the people. And I I, I I was edified to hear how, how much fun you had there, because as I think I've said (laughs) before, my entire experience of Minnesota basically consists of forever missing connections in Minneapolis. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So I, I have a, I have a negative sort of Pavlovian yeah. response. We missed a flight in Minnesota together. One time we were driving. We did a road trip episode of a different show that we used to make, and we were driving from a conference in Wisconsin to the airport in, in Minnesota, and we missed the we missed the flight together. Was yeah, that awful. was my fault. Well, I, I didn't remember whose fault it was. Who's keeping score? I do. I do. Okay. I keep score. Well, I remember everything. Okay. Well, um, what I want to talk about um, today, Ed, we're like halfway through the show, but what I want to talk about today is um, – Vos Estis Lux Mundi, uh, the um, the Holy Father's 2019 motu proprio that established norms, policies, and procedures pertaining to bishops and the um, uh, uh, adjudication of allegations of um, serious sexual misconduct. And uh, and the reason I want to talk about it is because Vos Estis was promulgated in 2019, May 7, 2019, for a three-year experimental period. And uh, and um, when's three years from May seventh, two thousand nineteen, my friend? Uh, it's a week from today, I think. Yeah, it is. Um, but actually, there was a little vacatio legis, and so it actually took effect on June one, two thousand nineteen. So I believe it will be June one, <coughs> two thousand nineteen, at which um, Vosestis Lex Mundi comes. Uh, its exper- its initial odd experiment and period comes to a close. And I want to talk about whether or not we think it has worked. And, you know, we've talked about Vosestis a lot on the thing, on the show, but I want to talk about whether or not we think it has worked. But, um, Ed, I would like to have that conversation after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the Petrus Development Conference 2022 in Naples Grand Resort in Naples, Florida, where over 150 Catholic fundraising professionals from ministries large and small will be gathered together to share fellowship and best practice. So, if you are working in 
fundraising around campus ministry, Catholic high schools, Catholic grads, grade schools, dioceses, or Catholic apostolates. Consider investing your time and your money in yourself and your career, as well as your ministry's future, at the Petrus Development Conference 2022. And Ed, I have um, checked out, I don't know if you have, but I have checked out the Petrus Development Conference a little bit. It's not easy, of course, to be um, a development professional working in Catholic fundraising. It's not easy to work in any kind of fundraising, but to fundraise for Catholic apostolates cannot be easy. And so I have checked out the Petrus Development Conference a little bit. The speakers are people who come from um, all kinds of uh, from uh, all kinds of ministries, all kinds of apostolates who have a lot of different experience in um, marketing, branding, event planning, social media development and social media campaigns, um, nonprofit organization, all kinds of things. And one of the speakers who I find really interesting is um, is uh, works with the uh, the the Our Sunday Visitor Challenge Accelerators. I'm sure you've heard about this. This is a little project of Our Sunday Visitor that annually kind of helps to. Um, helps apostolates to kind of um, work with people who have expertise in like nonprofit management, fundraising, business, even technology, to kind of like take their idea and accelerate it, if you will, into uh, into a, a much more sort of fully flourishing uh, apostolate, which I've always found really interesting. So um, speakers like Dr. Matt Smith and uh, and so many others at the Petrus Development Conference seem to me like they would really be uh, a big help if you work in the Catholic nonprofit fundraising sector, and if you want to make connections with just, you know, the kind of party people who listen to the Pillar podcast. Indeed. And also, bonus, if you register this month, being May, uh, you'll be entered into a raffle for a $150 gift card at the resort spa, because what's the point in going to a resort with a spa if you don't get to go to the spa? $150 gift card at the resort spa, the Petrus Development Conference, June 13th through 15th, 2022, at the Naples Grand Resort in Naples, Florida. If you are a Catholic fundraising development professional or you love one, um, or your spouse is one and you want to go with them to a conference and uh, hit the beach, check out petrusdevelopment.com slash pdc22, petrusdevelopment.com slash pdc22. Welcome back to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. You already know that I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and you already know that I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And you probably remember that we are getting ready to have a conversation about what, Ed? I've forgotten. Uh, vos estes lux mundi, J.D. Vos estes lux mundi. That's With right. almost superhuman willpower, I was able to I, retain that thought in my head while we did the commercial. I was still thinking about the Petrus Development Conference 2022. Advertisers, nope. that's how much I commit myself to thinking about your product or service when we advertise for it. So if you're interested in advertising with the pillar, uh, contact Michelle Rosa. Ed, what is it that we're talking about we're, again? We're going to talk about Vos Estes Lux Mundi now, J.D. Vos Estes Lux Mundi. Yes. You know, it's funny that we're talking about it because uh, it's <sighs> three-year period of uh, Ad Experimentum uh, is coming to a close. I think on probably June 1st, it was promulgated in 2019, and it's coming to a close. So one of the things that I've been thinking about, wondering about, and curious about is whether or not Vos Estes has worked. I mean, has it done the thing that it – what did it set out to do, and has it done the thing that it set out to do? Well, I mean, there's – okay, so if we're going to – I always feel a little bit – I mean, it, okay, Vosestis, as you say, was given a three-year odd experimentum period, and and I think that was right, that it'd be given a three-year odd experimentum period. But when you say, has it worked, did it do the thing it was supposed to do? I mean, it depends on what you mean. Like, what was the thing it was supposed to do? I know, I think we should talk about that. What is it? What was it for? I mean, it, arguably, what it was for was to show a serious commitment to um, 
procedural administrative legal reform in the wake of the McCarrick scandal and some of the other huge like dumpster fire yeah, scandals of Episcopal accountability. What it felt like to be a Catholic paying attention to the life of the church in 2019, where the McCarrick scandals were so so immediate and acute and falling on the tail of the McCarrick scandals were other uh, serious the clerical misconduct. I mean, lots Chile of Chile resigned. Right. The exa- that's exactly right. Um, the entire Episcopate of Chile resigned. We, we, you and I were sort of chasing uh, various leads about um, about uh, Cardinal Donald Whirl around. Uh, other other investigations were beginning, emerging, popping about um, American bishops, attorneys general around the country were um, beginning the process of like announcing. Um, you know, investigations into dioceses. Dioceses were being subpoenaed and even kind of raided where attorneys generals were sending state investigators with jackets and megaphones to seize documents. And um, we'd and had the Pennsylvania lots, grand jury report. We had the Pennsylvania grand jury report. And then there were lots of scandals that were local. It emerged after the uh, McCarrick report that, you know, a long, uh, excuse me, after the McCarrick allegations on the McCarrick report, that was still a long time coming. It emerged after the McCarrick allegations that, you know, a local and beloved vocations director or longtime university chaplain had, um, um, uh, you know, seriously uh, um, abused or coerced or manipulated um, seminarians or young adults or these kinds of things in, in many, many dioceses and many, many places, sort of long, unspoken, um, local and painful scandals emerged in the wake of the McCarrick scandal when people, I think, were beginning to feel free to talk about things that they had not talked about before <clears throat> that pertained especially to abuse, misconduct, uh, or coercion of adults. And uh, and so for a lot of people, there was pain. For the bishops, there was a sense of just serious crisis, especially with the resignation of the entire Chilean Episcopate and other things like that. And so um, – and so – um, and it was a crisis primarily of Episcopal accountability. Like we'd had yeah. the, we'd had the initial round in the church two decades ago, following the spotlight scandals and stuff like that about the, the the crisis of sexual abuse in the history of the church. But I think you know 2018, 2019 was was primarily a crisis of um, institutional accountability of you know instances where people were looking the other way or hadn't applied the rules that were there to be applied or had adopted a sort of winking hear no evil see no evil speak no evil approach to to you know cultures that were dysfunctional um so yeah and if so, we're talking about has Estes worked in the but last one three, way i think in light of all of that to assess has Estes worked is to think a cynic could think or or uh, yeah, a cynic would think one of the purposes of Vos Estes was to stop the moral panic that was rippling through the church at all levels, through through presbyteral, among priests, among religious, among bishops, among laity who practiced the faith, that there was just moral panic kind of rippling through. And one of the things was to sort of staunch the bleeding. Did Vos Estes work for that? Maybe. Uh, that's not the same as whether or not it achieved sort of the ends that it said it set out to do. But did it sort of say, as you said, that the church was, that the Holy See was, that the Holy Father was – taking this seriously and aiming to identify a procedural solution, I guess that's just not a very important end as far as I'm concerned. That the, the, the PR end is not a very important end. As far as well, I, hang on. I don't, <clears throat> I don't know that it's – I don't – even if you accept that that was an – not – I don't want to say this – certainly not the sole one or even necessarily the primary, but a, a principal intention – even if you say that is that was a principal intention of Vos Estes, I don't know that it, I would call that a PR exercise, that there is something to um, a crisis of confidence in the institutional hierarchy of the church, which is what we had in those years. Mm-hmm. And to answer that, 
um, persuasively, credibly, to say action is being taken. We are not ignoring worry, this there problem. There are grown-ups in charge. We're not ignoring this problem. And to have, as the Pope did, a global summit of the presidents of all the world's bishops' conferences, as well as, you know, some some specially invited uh, delegates the Pope selected. I, I, I don't think that was nothing. And, I mean, Vos Estes, again, and I, I said this already, I think needed, it, it would have been imprudent to implement Vos Estes for longer than a three-year ad experimental period, because, again, this was something that came out in a you know, in the in terms of church legal reform, in a blistering hurry after that summit, like weeks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, I think there should always be, especially when we're talking about things like legislation. Um, th- there should always be a healthy skepticism of legislation drafted in a hurry, and you should always have you know a sort of sunset clause on it to to make sure that it's revisited and um, you know how effective it has been is is being tested and evaluated, and you know make sure the kinks are being worked out of it, and you don't um, you know legislate. Um, what's the what's the phrase I'm reaching for and can't. Um, Legislated haste and repentant leisure. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's I think it's important that it be you know considered an iterative process. That this kind of there, reform. There is a kind of um, yes. There is a kind of this is intended to step out and take control of the situation and to express that. There is an extreme optimism expressed in the text itself. I'm going to read to you from the pre- from the preface of Vosestes. The crimes of sexual abuse offend our Lord, cause physical, psychological, psychological. Excuse. Me, the crime I stumbled over that. The crimes of sexual abuse offend our Lord, cause physical, psychological, and spiritual damage to the victims and harm the community of the faithful. In order that these phenomena and all their for- forms never happen again, a continuous and profound conversion of hearts is needed, attested by concrete and effective actions that involve everyone in the church, so that personal sanctity and moral commitment can contribute to promoting the full credibility of the gospel message and the effectiveness of the church's mission. Never happen again stands out like um like flashing red lights there, doesn't it? I mean, in the sense that it is an extremely sort of, it's a recognition that people are, of what people were saying in 2019, never again, burn it down, throw out every bishop. Um, The bishops need to pledge this never again thing. But also the notion that indeed law or or policy of any kind could actually ensure that um, crimes of sexual abuse would not occur in an ecclesial context ever again is um, is one, I think, intended to sort of recognize and validate what people are saying, or at least to demonstrate having heard what people are saying. But it's not especially realistic. It's humorous. Um, in, in my, uh, is it? I think so. Put it this way. When you say never again in the context of uh, uh, of these issues. Is it hubris or pandering or or just naive? I think it's hubris. But Boy, we're really giving a lot of positive options here. For yeah, I was going to say, you're, you're, you're not yeah. exactly... Or Christi- it could be Christian hope of some kind of... That's a hell of a flop you want me to make a hand out of. But um, if I have to pick, I'd, I'd go with hubris. I you know when you say never again, um, the person who leaps to mind with the phrase never again with regards to these things is actually Teddy McCarrick, who, right, who said, said never again at, at Dallas and said, mm-hmm. we have to make sure there isn't a Dallas 2 and a Dallas right. 3. and lo and behold so when someone says never again i i the hair on the back of my neck stands up a little bit but again i don't think it was done with a bad intention i think it was done with a sincere intention and a recognition that there was an urgency to this problem um and that swift and action as decisive as was possible in the circumstances be taken and i think that one should not um and i'm sure we're going to talk about the things about Fosestes that perhaps have been unequally applied or not mm-hmm. particularly well lived in a moment. But before we get onto that, I don't think 
it should be missed. And I think credit should be given where it is due that something like this existed in the first place, that uh, on the back of what was, I, I think I'm capturing this time frame right here, like nine months of just firestorm after firestorm in the church across the world, you know, in, in, in Latin America, in the United States, in Europe, you know, just outrageous scandal and problem after outrageous scandal and problem to be able to marshal a response that was as coherent as that summit leading to Vosestes was in that frame of time, I think is commendable. It wasn't perfect. Um, and I don't think, and again, we'll talk, we'll talk about this now. I'm sure. Um, I don't think it, it provided definitive answers. And I don't think that to say that Vosestes was a remarkable effort of response to that situation at the time means that it needn't necessarily be considered a, a permanent uh, solution to all of these problems. And I don't think that um, it's necessarily, uh, I don't think it's necessarily contradictory to say Vosestes was what we needed at the time. And now we need something better. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does make sense. Uh, I, I appreciate what you're saying, and I appreciate that you're saying it's intended to be the first stage in, in evolution, and uh, and I think that's great. So a, as a kind of pastoral step or a kind of, um, uh, a kind of uh, first step or something like that, um, uh, what do you – I mean – in terms of its actual application, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying about its sort of the necessity of taking a first step and the accomplishment of taking a first step and all that. I, I appreciate that. But in terms of the actual like um, intention of adjudicating um, Episcopal neglect, Episcopal omission or Episcopal abuse and misconduct, I'm I'm not especially enthusiastic about the track record of Vos Estes Lex Mundi. I'm, I'm not wild about it. Now, well, let's start with the first problem with Vos Estes, and I would argue the biggest single problem with Vos Estes, which is what is it? Yeah, we have we talked a lot about this in 2019, and what Ed means is what kind of thing is this? Is this new law? Is this new canon law in the life of the church? Or is this an instruction which clarifies the existing canon law? And the reason to ask that question is because this um, – text introduces a lot of new terms, but also a lot of potentially sort of, it either introduces new canonical crimes or it says, oh, these canonical crimes were always implicit in in the church's law, but they were just not explicit. So this instruction is kind of clarifying that they exist embedded in there. And that matters in terms of the question of whether or not the thing is merely prospective, that is to say, capable of investigating things which took place from the time of its promulgation forward, or whether it's retrospective, that is to say, capable of investigating and um, processing things which took place beforehand. And I think we'd have to say practically, given its application with the one case which we can sort of concretely point to where it led to um, a finding, presumably a finding of fault in the Episcopal resignation, the Diocese of Crookston, Minnesota, I think we'd have to say that it, I think it has some retrospective character which makes it an instruction rather than new law. That's right. I mean, arguably, I mean, <clears throat> but here again, it's not, this is why we could use more clarities. Okay, if right. we say it's an oh, instruction, yeah. it's retrospective, um, where are we necessarily recognizing these, what appear to be delicts with the, with the obvious um, 
potential penalty of removal from office. Mm-hmm. Um, where where's the origin of those delicts? Is it or in, even potentially removal from the clerical state? I think even potentially removal from the clerical state uh, is the origin of those delicts. Book six of the Code of Canon Law, that I suppose now is the old Book six of the Code of Canon Law, promulgated mm-hmm. in eighty three, not the new one which came into force in December last year. Is it that? Is it other leg- is it other legislation that Pope Francis has well, issued? Actually, if it were an instruction on the old Book six, then what would be its status now? Well, it would have been abrogated. Right. Um, but then again, is it is it an instruction on effectively Comuna Madre Moravole, which was a motu proprio that Pope Francis issued in 2015, I think? Yeah, 2015. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, that basically established as a potential removal from office offense on the part of Bishop, basically damaging the damaging, um, causing harm, be it physical, financial, or spiritual, to the people of uh, a bishop's diocese so i mean it's not clear the legal status of vos estes in itself it's not clear if it's retrospective because it's an instruction um what is an instruction on the implementation of is it on the implementation implementation of specific papal law or general universal law in the church that's not clear so that's the first i think major strike against uh the enduring suitability of vos estes and why hopefully we're going to see, if not um, its replacement with something more uh, coherent and, you know, that, that mm-hmm. benefits from the three years we've had since it was it was issued uh, to be a more permanent resolution of the issues that Vosestes was originally created to address. Right. Um, I hope we will see at least clarity on what what is this legal thing that we keep referencing and keeps being referenced uh, in in all kinds of legal processes which are themselves unclear so that's one thing you you say you think it's got a spotty track record i would say it it does um and but this was something we kind of anticipated at the time when vosestes came out and it and it lent heavily into the so-called metropolitan model of handling accusations of misconduct or basically administrative failure in addressing misconduct in the diocese um, by diocesan bishops, which was, well, this is a lot of this is going to depend. The effectiveness of this document is going to depend on who's quarterbacking the process. And if you have a good metropolitan or uh, otherwise designated bishop from, um, from Rome, running the show, you're probably going to get a very good outcome. And we saw this in, you know, you mentioned Crookston, where you had Archbishop Bernard Hebda of Minneapolis-St. Paul put in charge of it, who was himself an extremely well-qualified and experienced canon lawyer and took a long time yeah. investigating think, the circumstances yeah, in Crookston months, and right? had the, um, I would say, good pastoral and legal sense, but also the initiative to look past the original um, strict syllabus that he was told to investigate when he got there and said, there seems to be bigger issues here. I'm going to go back and get authorization, at least as I understood this is how it happened, to make a more wide inquiry and survey of what's been going on in this diocese and really to make sure that the whole situation was understood and addressed. And so I think we've had very positive outcomes in situations like that. We've had other ones where... You know, it has been grudgingly 
extremely grudgingly acknowledged that there was a Vosestes complaint or investigation at all in diocese. Yeah. And the results of those investigations have not at all been clearly stated. And oftentimes we're just left to infer. That well, they and that's a real problem for a process. The, the, the notion of a just process, which takes place absent, Something and and I, I don't want to use the I, I'm hesitant to use the word transparency because I think it can it has become somewhat of a, an empty buzzword. But the the idea of a just process that takes place without clarity of its results and without sort of intelligible results, having followed an intelligible and comprehensible process, is uh, is a mood. I mean, it's the, the, you cannot have justice. Uh, you. Justice in secret justice is, just, is the, justice right, yeah, denied. Without, without, this, without the knowledge of a just process and a just outcome. Right. And to say that justice in secret just, is justice because denied is not to say. The just process is not only a process for the accused or the accuser who might be informed. Um, a, a, a process like Vos Estes Lex Mundi is intended to uh, address a problem which wounds, as it were, the whole of a community. And so justice must take into account, not that every member of the community has the right to know every prurient detail, but justice must take into account um, the demands of the community to understand the outcome, having understood the problem and having been potentially wounded by it. Absolutely. And, but, right. but, I mean, this is the thing. When you say transparency becomes something of a buzzword, it's like, right, this is not to say that a Vosestes investigation has to take place in sort of open court right. and there have to be, you know. Every piece of the act has to be published or something like or, that. Or should be. And in many cases, it would not necessarily be appropriate to. But to clearly acknowledge that the thing is happening, to be able to summarize the reasons for the thing happening, to be able to give some sense of what the assessed proofs are, and then to be able to give some sense of what the outcome is beyond sort of constat or non-constat, that is to say, yay or nay, but to say um, these these allegations that were raised were unable to be wholly proven for lack of sort of corroborating, substantiating or corroborating evidence, or the Holy See decided that the um, you know that this met a sufficient threshold to request the bishop's resignation. I mean, things like that. It is not unreasonable to to think that the Church, having put herself the, the hierarchical constitution of the Church, having put itself in the position of having diminished its credibility on matters of discipline, would have to earn that credibility through a certain modicum of clarity about its own processes. You can't screw up as badly as as McCarrick represents and then say, "Oh, but just trust us; we're doing it right now," and shame on you for asking. I, I would agree with that. Um, and, and, it, okay, I, I was going to raise some. But do you have, please? No, 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 go ahead. I'll hold mine. No, no, we're being we're being. Deli- I have noticed we've been we've been we've been being delightfully delightfully deferential to one another in recent. And one of the negative consequences of Osestes, from my point of view, in terms of coming out and saying, "Okay, we're doing something," is that it has. I think I, I said this was going to happen, and indeed it has. It has made those. It has enabled those who are disinclined um, to see authentic reformation of disciplinary matters. And I don't mean our reformation, but authentic ref- ecclesial reform of, of disciplinary matters. It has it has given them the fact that Vosestes was promulgated has given a perch from which to say um, those who are demanding accountability are zealots or are somehow. Um, merely engaged in sort of self-promotion or they can't let it go or they can't trust us and we gave you a process and we told you we're going to do it and so now back up and let us do it. There is a sense in which that's happening by those who are disinclined towards a kind of really Holy Spirit-led period period and process of ecclesial repentance and reform. Um, and, uh, And so in a certain way, this is, I think, a problem with the with the with the hasty promulgation of Vosestes is that there does not seem to be an understanding that promulgation is step one in a multi-step process for the restoration of credibility. 
I would absolutely. And the second is a very transparent um, demonstration of the application of those norms. I would Rather, those who ask for any demonstration of those norms are sort of chastised for, and I don't just mean us, I don't care about us, but just in general, I've seen many victims and victims advocates sort of chastised, like, well, you got vos estes, what do you want now in this country and in others? And, and that, to the extent that that attitude exists, it's highly problematic. I'm, I'm wary now because I keep trying. Okay. To, <laughs> I, I don't want to cut you off. No, go ahead. Okay. Um, I would agree with all of that. I would absolutely agree with all that. Although I would say, here's one thing that Vosestes has not done, and I can, I think, demonstrate it, is one of the great buzzwords around the church at the time of the McCarrick scandal and going into the summit in 2019 was the word clericalism. And it was uh, significantly in vogue at the time in some quarters to say, well, the problem with McCarrick was not a problem of aberrant sexual behavior or sexual coercion or anything like that. It was a problem of clericalism. That's what this is about. This isn't about sex. You would frequently write, I think, in a number of analyses at the time about uh, vigorous acts of clericalism, which always... I, I did once in, sarcastically coin the phrase vigorous acts of clericalism to describe what um, some, some, some people had been getting up to and that it was a ridiculous thing to suggest that this was purely a crime of um, power disparity and, and not uh, a sexual crime. But that's one side. I, I would say to the extent to which um, it was, uh, I think, universally accepted that that clericalism properly understood did have some role to play in the scandals of uh, in the United States around McCarrick, uh, in the in the looking the other way around issues around McCarrick and Rome and also in situations like Chile, uh, that clericalism and a culture of sort of solidarity and um, looking at their way and, and mutual protection was a problem. And also we saw this particularly in, in the case of McCarrick uh, concerns raised by people, be they religious sisters or simple priests against a, a bishop or God forbid, a cardinal or members of the lady or families of victims or victims themselves were just sort of waved away as, you know, well, you know, you, you're going to get these cranks and attention seekers coming after, you know, holy and high profile individuals like Uncle Ted. Um, so I think to the extent that there was an understanding that clericalism was a problem that Vosestes are trying to, I do not believe it has succeeded in, in combating that at all. In fact, I yeah. would say that Vosestes in the way it's been implemented underscores the extent to which clericalism remains very much a problem in the way the church handles these situations. And I would offer as proof of that, the fact that the vast majority of instances in which a Vosestes investigation has been convened in a, and returned what I think we could call uh, an unfavorable result against a bishop i i hesitate to say a conviction because again i don't i'm not clear that there's law here that's being applied i'm not clear that the process of those estes constitutes a judicial process necessarily or if it is more a sort of instructive thing on on other separate penal processes that should be followed and this is sort of you know providing uh color around that that's unclear again back to point one we need clarity on that but anyway where those estes investigations have returned an unfavorable vote on the bishop the bishop witness crookston is still invited to resign that penalties right. are not imposed that they are still offered the gentleman's way out because right. it's not you know you, it's very undignified to suggest that a bishop could you know engage in 
um, outrageous misconduct to the spiritual and moral detriment of the people of the diocese and perhaps to the immediate harm of uh, victims of clerical sexual abuse um, and then say that they should actually be subjected to formal punishment to that. That's icky. But I tell you for why that doesn't happen, J.D., and again, this is clericalism, um, is if you depose a bishop, if you actually remove them from office as a penalty, you have to say what the penalty is being imposed for. Right. It actually necessitates, in order to impose a penalty on someone, it necessitates the kind of transparency of outcome that you were just saying yeah. we are still lacking. And right. that's why they don't do it. They right. say, resign, because otherwise we'll have to remove you. And if we have to we'll remove have to you, you, we did. have to say what you did. And we don't right, want to say exactly. that out loud. So let's just, all, let's just all be gentlemen about this and be yeah. on our way. We'll leave you in the room with a bottle of brandy and the pearl-handled revolver, and we'll be back in an hour. We trust that you'll do the decent thing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that that has been driving me crazy for longer than Vosestes has been around. No, I, I know. I know. I do think, um, so I do think there, I mean, I, one of the things I wanted to say sort of in the favor of Vosestes was that I do think there has been a cultural change to some extent. Now, we report on, I think, many, many, many exceptions to this, but I do think there has been a cultural change to some extent hastened by Vosestes that helps to understand that um, what Many things that once might have been characterized as moral failures that pertain to the imbalance of power in, dyna- in relationship, pastoral relationships or relationships of authority between two people who are adults uh, uh, constitutes more than a moral failure but a, an instance of coercion or abuse, and that must be taken seriously. I do think that, that many dioceses and seminaries and diocesan administrators have better understood that, that various kinds of – uh, immoral relationships that months would have been thought about merely in terms of morality need to be thought about in terms of um, uh, coercion, abuse, consent, and, and these kinds of things. And I think that 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 that, that Vosestes is helping to hasten or catalyze a change in that way. Although the fact of the matter is um, that there hasn't really been um, uh, an, an outcome. You know, a few bishops who had Vosestes investigations were – you know, exonerated, so to speak, and then one was permitted to resign, but that there hasn't really been uh, an example of a bishop held to account, uh, apart from being permitted to resign, undermines the enduring lesson, um, you know, the enduring lesson needed to be learned from McCarrick. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, and I'm not just saying this because I report about him a lot, but I have been reporting for a full year about a bishop who, um, uh, by his own admission, um, interfered with a canonical process pertaining to um, an allegation of serious sexual misconduct of potentially a vulnerable person, and um, by his own admission did that. And and you know then it turns out has a pattern of sort of interfering with reports um, uh, pertaining to uh, misconduct, um, uh, sexual misconduct of various kinds involving clerics. It seems to have a pattern of interfering with um, instances pertaining to the review board, or it seems to have a pattern of avoiding taking things to the review board, or um, seems now to have a pattern of, as I reported just today, um, you know. Uh, giving seminarians the kinds of uh, gifts that suggest an unseemly um, relationship or at least a relationship of favor that would make the potential for sort of objectively judging their behavior um, darn near impossible. And there has been no accountability for that whatsoever. Um, There has been perhaps the semblance of an investigation, but no accountability for that. And I do think the longer people watch investigations like the one to which I refer, namely that of Bishop Rick Sticka, and I don't know how rare or unusual Sticka's situation is I hope it's extremely unusual, but the fact that there are a set of facts out there and an admission 
of something which I think many people would say is wrongdoing, namely taking an investigator off of, of a review board investigation because he is, quote, asking all these questions. And there has not yet been a response to it is, for many people, rather discouraging. I, I would say discouraging is a very gentle way of putting it. Yeah. Well. Um. I was just looking to see what you would do if you were the host of the show now because, you know, it can be... <laughs> That's not because fair. Because the thing is, this is the tricky thing about being the host of the show. Nobody wants to end on that downer of a note, but... Well, no, I didn't intend have... that we would end on it. I just... I, I, have, I have wrong-footed myself two or three times already this show where I thought you were done talking and I've jumped in and then you've been... Continue talking and I've... Be quiet. And I, it creates an editing nightmare <clears throat> for you when I'm... It does, it does. But I'll edit them all out. Or maybe not. Or maybe I'll just let them write. I don't know. So no, I was just trying to. I was trying to respectfully put. No, I. But all of these things having been said, and and again, these are all serious problems with Vosestes, uh, either in its uh, sort of drafting and promulgation. Oh, oh, we haven't even talked about the conflation of vulnerable persons with minors. Yeah. Which yeah. I mean, that has begun to be ironed out a little bit, right. and but it's uh, thanks to the new book six, thanks to sort of quasi-authoritative interpretations given in lectures by people like Archbishop Shikluna, um, but also through the CDS Vade Makem, um that, that was all a bit patchwork. But I think the new book six has broadly speaking ironed it all out. But that was a serious problem with Vosestes, which needed to be addressed, and I think the new book six has kind of worked to do that. But still, Vosestes is there, and the wording of Vosestes is there. So hopefully, the at experimental period coming to an end and there being either a re, you know, a sort of re-editing of Vosestes and a, and a re-promulgation or its replacement with something else, I hope would see that because there there is this confusion in Vosestes about the, the legal equivalence of minors and uh, a very, very, very broad definition of what constitutes a vulnerable adult in Vosestes, yeah. one which I think is legally problematic and also I think is morally problematic because I, I don't you know, and I've said this before, this is not to say that all sexual abuse is not serious. Of course it is. And it's not to say that sexual abuse that is compounded by an abusive office or power or spiritual authority or pastoral proximity or any of those things is not a very, very serious offense. It is. But I think it is not morally correct to say that the sexual abuse of a minor, that is someone who is potentially a child, not necessarily an adolescent, but someone who's like, you know, under 10 is the same as um, a, a coercive or inappropriate um, sexual relationship in a, in a workplace setting. I just don't, those things don't belong to my mind in the same um, legal bracket. They, they, they each need to be addressed legally, but they, but yes. civil law makes distinctions between them for, for, for reasons, for reasons. And yes. Can, they are not the same right. thing, which is not to say they don't both need to be They're addressed and they aren't both serious, but they are not the same thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, if for no other reason than <laughs> then the then the um, pathology of the crime is exactly right. So uh, we just sort of drove by that one there because uh, I know we're we're coming up on time, but I, I wanted to make sure that we we checked that as as another thing. Hopefully that we received Vosessi's. I think we're going to have a lot to, to discuss about this because as we get close to June one, you, you and I are going to start talking with and hearing from friends in the dicasteries of the Roman Curia that will have a sense of whether or not Vosestes is being revised. It is not my sense that Vosestes is actually really, that, that a revision process has actually begun for Vosestes. So my guess is that the first thing we're going to see is a sort of just letting it sort of ride beyond its, um, beyond its mandate, 
either sort of officially or unofficially. Um, and then, you know, eventually we'll find out that there's a working group or something that's working on it is, is going to be my guess. Um, and my I guess is they will take all of the time on, on deciding what to do next with FOSSTs that they didn't take in promulgating in the first place. Right. Yeah. And, and, and actually good because, you know, one thing that I wonder about it is just on balance, yes or no. You, you remember that Vosestis was the um, the alternative to the plan that the U.S. bishops had, which was to have effectively a national review board, which was yes. empowered to um, investigate allegations of abuse, misconduct, omission, grave omissions of neglect or whatever on the part of bishops, and then to make recommendations to the congregation for bishops. That that was the idea. There's some sort of impaneled national – there's already a thing called a national review board, different from that, but some kind of impaneled body that would – review these allegations and then make recommendations to the congregation for bishops. That was um, quashed by the Holy See, and what emerged from the quashing um, was the, the the metropolitan model that's promulgated in Vosestis Lex Moody. On balance, yes or no, and I'll give my answer after yours. Do you think what we have is better than what was proposed then? 100% yes. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. That isn't to say they can't be more creative and come up with great ways of expanding the idea. I continue to my... My my baby, my the idea I keep saying you could do this, they could do this, there would be no to empower promoters of justice. Not just empower promoters, have a national national promoter promoter of justice. The promoter of justice is the prosecutor in the church. I think having a national promoter of justice would be really cool. And you and I have said this before about the only job that you and I could think of doing rather than this one, um, would be if the USCCB approached us and asked us to become the national promoters of justice, I think we would say yes. I, I would. Just so you know, US, well, you would say yes? I would say yes. Just so you know, USCCB, if you want us to stop doing this. <laughs> <laughs> just make us the national power promoters of justice and give us a big budget to do it. And, uh, you know. I think we would both think that was pretty cool. All um, right, what's what's this? What's the name of that guy? The the English guy who was John Stewart's sidekick and now has a YouTube channel. John Oliver. John Oliver. All right, John Oliver. Stop. You know. <laughs> stop oh, listing stop your bl- terms. Oh, I see. I didn't understand that at all, but now I get it. You're saying something. Got it. Um, uh, no, I'm not saying that in any way, shape, or form. But I think that I think that is an important job, and I could I'd be very happy to recommend certain people to it. With that said, um, and then we'd have the job actually of holding <laughs> promoter of justice. the promoter of justice to account because we believe in public accountability. <laughs> the person from, the national the promoter press. of justice would hate most would be us because oh, we'd be calling the them every day. national promoter of justice would be so irritated with us because we'd always be looking to see if he was doing his thing. Um, but on balance, I agree. Although my biggest concern about Vosestis, which we didn't get into yet, there are a lot of them. My biggest concern about Vosestis, aside from what seems to be a relatively sclerotic decision-making process, so my two concerns. One, a relatively sclerotic decision-making process where these things just take a very long time. And I'm glad on the one hand that they're thorough. On the other hand, absent communication, the very long time looks like um, indifference. Mm-hmm. And I, what I've heard from a lot of people connected, you know, surrounding the situation in eastern Tennessee, the Diocese of Knoxville is this, you know, they, they, they fi- they've raised Vosestis complaints more than a year ago. They know that there was some semblance of an investigation. Those of them who were questioned in the context of that investigation know it. And then others know because they read it at the pillar or in other places 
they believe that that has been sent to Rome, but they haven't heard anything, and it feel it has it gives the the delay gives the impression of indifference, and I think that if there is indifference, it needs to be resolved. If there's not indifference, much more communication is needed. That's problem one, and two, I continue to be concerned about the possibility of conflicts of interest between metropolitans and their suffragans when it comes to this investigative role. We didn't talk about that, but you know, Cardinal Dolan. Um, Investigated Bishop DiMarzio on a on a series of allegations, and um, it, you and I looked into the allegations against Bishop DiMarzio, and we did not find immediately sort of manifesting proof of those allegations ourselves. Uh, but, I'd um, go beyond yeah, immediately. <laughs> yeah, we did not find sort of manifestations of proof of those allegations. Let's in, say in, the, the, the Holy See returned a decision that they were um, they were lacking in all foundation that they could be dismissed as manifestly false and frivolous. And our journalism didn't overcome that. You know, didn't suggest that a different assessment should have been reached, but. Um, Cardinal Dolan has a track record of being friends with Bishop Tamarzio and saying nice things about him and thinking well of him and going to events with him and just being one of two bishops in New York City, uh, two diocesan bishops in New York City. And so the appearance of a conflict of interest and the possibility that a conflict of interest could actually impede an effective investigation I think really is something that is insufficiently addressed in this uh, in this model. But anyway, um, we shall see. Something cool happened, Ed, changing gears a little bit for one minute. Uh, you have a stop, actually. We've got to call it quits in a minute here. But something cool uh, happened, readers, that I would like to invite you to participate in. Um, uh, a, 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 a listener, a pillar listener and reader and subscriber, uh, thank you very much, uh, and subscriber to the pillar, uh, just sent us a note the other day saying that he has just been appointed a pastor. He has been uh, a parochial vicar and has just been appointed a pastor and was interested in the advice that Ed and I might give him both as candid lawyers and as journalists as a new pastor. And we could say a couple things, but you, our listeners, there's a much more collective wisdom um, to this uh, to this show than, um, than we can offer. So um, go to uh, the page for this podcast on um, PillarCatholic.com. And in the comments, I'd just be interested to read your advice to a new pastor based upon your experience as a pastor or experience in ministry or experience as a parishioner. And we will um, pick some of that advice and uh, talk about it next week. So go to PillarCatholic.com, find this episode of the podcast, and uh, in the comments you could give your advice, and we'll talk about some of that advice next week. I, I so, would just like to say, before we stop, that a lot of what we talked about today I was not expecting to talk about. Yeah. Um, and I'm very grateful for that, because you had intended to trying to make me talk about cats. So, Oh, because I got a cat. And I, I'm surprised it. that you don't like an animal with a great deal of utility and with an emotional resolve not to need anything from you. Um, my cat is great. I'm glad that you like your She's cat. She's a Siamese. She has no. She needs nothing from me. She has a great deal of utility, and she's cute. She jumps up in the air and stuff. I'm I'm glad you like your cat. Okay. Um, as ever, if you like the show, don't forget to give us a great review and uh, and don't forget that the pillar runs on subscribers. So uh, pillarcatholic.com/slash/subscribe. As Ed has said many times, if every listener to the Pillar podcast was a Pillar subscriber, we would have many more uh, writers and correspondence for the Pillar. But this show in particular was brought to you by Petrus Development and the Petrus Development Conference 2022 from June 13th through 15th at the Naples Grand Resort in Naples, Florida. Join more than 150 Catholic fundraising professionals from ministries small and large, whether campus ministry, Catholic high school, Catholic grade school, dioceses, Catholic apostolates. Invest in yourself and your career as well as your ministry's future. The Petrus Development Conference 2022 Petrus Development slash PDC22. PetrusDevelopment.com. 
That's better. PetrusDevelopment.com slash PDC22. PetrusDevelopment.com slash PDC22. And if you use the coupon code PILLAR, you will get $50 off your registration. Ed, been good talking with you. Peace out. Okay, the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. We'll be back next week when the day is new. Good show.